acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts the black effect presents family therapy and i'm your host elliot connie Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A shout out to Mark Rivers for the most amazing theme song of all time. Hello, welcome to Lady of the Road. My name is Arda Marine, coming to you from my bougie garage in Los Angeles, California. You might know me from the Netflix show Insatiable or Shameless or my very, very political, hard hitting podcast. Will you accept this rose about this Bachelor franchise? With me today is my friend, my cohort, and my co host, Miss. Julianne Robinson. And what do people know you from, Julianne? I have had a very long, very varied career, but people will always know me for having directed the pilot of Bridgerton. And Sexy Six. And Sexy Six, excuse (laughs) me. And Sexy Six. We should say, as we're recording this, Julianne, congratulations are in order. You were just nominated for a Director's Guild Award. Anna and I were texting each other, and she was like, Julianne's so baller. She's up against John Favreau and Vince Gilligan, right? Yeah. I was like, that's so casual. <laughs> I believe so. I'm a shoe in right? You're a shoe in <laughs> Well, we are so excited I'm going to say this is my oldest friend in Hollywood. I believe in Hollywood, I have known this person the longest. She is actually Zooming to us right now. 
she's down under. She lucked out and like went for a fun romantic trip, fell in love like around February 2020 and got got borders closed in the only place on earth that just got it right. And has just been like truly living a completely different experience. She's in Australia right now. You know our guest. She's an actor. You know her from as the star of private practice. Excuse me, number one on a Shonda show. Excuse me. Grey's Anatomy. 13 Reasons Why. Umbrella Academy. Fargo. Girls Trip. Drew Carey. Bad Judge. Emily in Paris. Stage Productions. I mean, stage, screen, and television. Excuse me. She's also a producer. She's an entrepreneur. She started a perfume company called Boyfriend that you can buy everywhere. It smells so good. And they even have boyfriend candles which I actually burned all of my, I've used my entire boyfriend candle and I'm now down to some other weird one right now that's not yours. And she's an animal activist, but most importantly, she's a hilarious, loyal, wonderful friend. I love her so much. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Kate Kathleen Walsh. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. What an intro, Arden. What an intro. Hi, Julianne. So happy to be talking to you. Now, you guys know each other. Julianne was saying she directed your first ever episode. Is that right? Actually, that's not true. I double checked. I went back and I actually watched the first episode that I ever did on Grey's Anatomy. And you you were indeed in it, Kate. And so now I'm transported back to being that person that had like literally just got off the plane from England and didn't know what the heck was going on and everything was so big and scary and there you were and I was having to direct you this glamorous amazingly beautiful poised person that was quite a thing I remember it well was I nice I hope I was nice though I'm yeah you were you were super nice nice. which episode was it I can't remember it was called the band-aid covers the bullet hole a lot of alliteration. I like it. Yeah. Yep. And one of the patient's <laughs> husbands was flirting with you and saying that you looked like Catherine Deneuve. Oh, I remember. Okay. Yes. Gosh. <laughs> yes. Who is it? Who was the writer that, and then he went on to run Scandal, Mark. Mark Wilding. Yes. And Mark was always like, we're going to write that you look like Catherine Deneuve. And I was like, oh, it's so embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, me? <laughs> that's oh, me? It's so embarrassing, but okay. <laughs> I met Kate when I was 19 years old. We met in Chicago and she had platinum blonde hair. Talk about Catherine Deneuve. You as a blonde, holy cow, did you, you still do. <laughs> but blonde Kate Walsh, you want to see a dead ringer for Catherine Deneuve. It's like blonde Kate Walsh. It was weird. That was weird. I must say, I remember being in New York with my platinum blonde, moving into chicken fat yellow hair uh, <laughs> color and I was like, and it was IFC or something. And I saw like the, what is it? Belle du jour or something. And I'm like, what? It was yeah. like, I was a very strange thing. I'm like, that, that's a weird thing. It looked it's like weird yeah. when you, when you look like somebody. It is weird. Kate. So we wanted to talk to you a little bit about your upbringing. Cause I'm just fascinated. I know that you, are you the youngest of five children? Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. It was Joe Walsh. Joseph Patrick came over when he was four from Ireland. Mm-hmm. And then my mom is, she's third generation. Her grandparents were immigrants. Yeah. And then my grandmother was first generation. And then, yeah. You're Irish Italian, right? That's correct. Yeah. 
And you grew up in San Jose? San Jose, California. My parents were divorced though when I was six, seven. Then I'm the only one that went to live with my mom. And it was quite unusual, but that's what happened. I didn't think it was unusual until years later in therapy. I'm like, wait a minute. Huh? How did that happen? Anyway. So wait, were you, how much how much younger were you than your siblings? So Well, Joe, Joe Walsh Jr. is five years older than me. I hate to out him like that on the on the internet, but he is. He's older. And then there's, so it's like five, six, seven. Yeah. And then my oldest sister was already out of the house. So the older three were with my dad. And then my mother remarried my stepfather, who's 17 years younger than her, Hal, Hal Embry. That's, that's and right. So I call her the OC, the original cougar, because she, <laughs> she really made a path. Hearing your brother, you and your brother talking about your stepdad, like that he was like kind of young and hot. He looked like Donovan Leach. He looked like Donovan because I remember liking Donovan and he liked Donovan too. And he also played the guitar and played Donovan songs. I was like, this is so weird. I remember being seven, eight. I'm like, wow, my mom's married to the guy who looks exactly like Donovan. How did they meet? They met, I think they met in therapy as one does <laughs> in the seventies. <laughs> we bring on women that our first person we talked to was Joan Jett. Like we are talking to people we admire. Wow. Like our, yeah. I'm in good company. You're in good company. Like we talk to people that have what we want. I would say you, I've always respected your business sense, your talent, your ownership of yourself. And what I like is your scrappiness, that you did not come from privilege. You almost sounded like unsupervised. And you were saying you were running around the hills where that murderer was. What was that? Oh, yeah. When in, we're, Charles Manson was. That's where we lived. It was like my oldest sister apparently met Charles Manson. But this was, yeah, this was in Northern California at Alum Rock Park. So this before he was really, you know, in the height of his madness, he, my oldest sister said that she was in Alum Rock Park around a bonfire tripping on acid. And he was talking about how he could control the flies. And that's when she's like, you know what? I'm going to back away because this is starting to become a bad trip. (laughs) So that's what I've heard. I don't know why my older sister would say that if it wasn't the truth. But this was way before he moved down south and did all the the real madness. God, I mean, my parents moved to California from provincial New Jersey. I was in my mom's belly. Summer of love, 1967. Major race riots happening Mm -hmm. and with the National Guard in New Jersey and Newark. And my parents lived in Maplewood. Because I remember asking, you know, at a certain age, like, what was happening when I was in utero? Was there some stress? Just wondering. <laughs> just yeah. sort of trying to map my own madness. And so I'm just looking back to where, you know, it all started. And um, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, there were like these crazy riots. Your father had already left to California to start his job. I was left with three babies and diapers here in my belly. And, and she's like, I remember our housekeeper had to keep her who's African-American, like shelter her in the house because it wasn't safe to go outside. And so it was just crazy time. All the kids, like I'd said, had been in parochial school, moved to California, summer of love. Everyone went to public school and all madness ensued. People forget how culturally different, it was like a different country, California versus say New York or New Jersey or Connecticut. And I remember when I first moved back East as a young person, when I first met you, Arden in Chicago, and then going on to New York, we made our little bunny trail across the east and then yeah. back to California. I remember thinking, oh, this is so different from where I grew up, East Coast. It's still culturally different, but even more so if you, I mean, back in the 60s and 70s, it must have been just like 
California was like the wild west. Mm-hmm. You seem very East Coast to me. Like, you know, because I met, I guess I met you in Chicago and we moved to New York, but you've always had that. I say this as the highest compliment. There's always been this glamour, like anti-mame. You felt like a movie star, even when you were just doing a play in a gymnasium that I saw with you and Pat McCartney and you were 23 years old. And I don't know if you even had like an agent yet, but like, it was like, she's a movie star. Like you felt very New York sophisticated. Uh. There was something almost like old fashioned. What was the name of the woman who played Mrs. Robinson? Oh yeah. Anne Bancroft, right? Anne Bancroft. Like, yeah, you felt like a woman. I'm like, confident and powerful and fun. This is really good for me. Thank you. This is very good for me to hear this. You were also fun. Like you were a rascal. Like you were like, like it wasn't just ambition. It was like this and I'm going to go out for eat a steak and I'm going to have a glass of wine. And like, it's interesting that you say that because I think I was just really in love with that archetype of actress movie star since I was little, because before even my parents were divorced, my mother and I would watch old movies together. We would watch the million dollar movie. I watched Dialing for Dollars. That's what I watched. I said, that's all I watched was the This old- is what I wanted. And we talked about this because in your book, you wanted to be like Gypsy Rose Lee. Yeah. I was like, that's what I want to be. Or a Zigfield Folly girl. Yeah. I wanted to be wearing scantily clad, sequin bedazzled rhinestone and plumed headdresses, swimming and dancing and sink. Yes. But also I did. I fell in love with the old studio system. I was like, I can't wait to meet Louis B. Mayer and be a part of the system. And be handcuffed to the studio. To the studios. Yeah. You know, of course it's all projection, but I was in love with every dead movie star. I was like, oh, Tyrone Power. Oh my God. Gary (laughs) Cooper. Wait for me. Oh my God. Gary Cooper. I mean, what a what a yeah. dreamboat. And then, of course, Carol Lombard and oh, yeah. Myrna Loy. Myrna Loy. And oh, my God. I mean, I want to be alone. Her. Greta Garbo. Greta Garbo. And just everything. I really Catherine was. Catherine Hepburn. Yes. Catherine yeah. Hepburn. And, and, and then also the dancers, uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly. I was obsessed. And that's where I would go. That was my first, I guess, escape. Right. I wasn't into dolls. I wasn't into that. I was like, How old I would you? go and How watch old? these movies. Little, like I would say probably five, five, as early as I can remember, going to the movies. And then going to the movies, also the, the interesting time of growing up in the 70s, that was the best decade for, for feature right. films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there was no kid movies. Like we just go see whatever the adults were saying. That's right. I was just saying that to somebody yeah. else. I mean, I, we, I watched MASH with my parents. We all did. Yeah. You're like, ah. Nothing like a comedy in the Korean War yeah. for like a six-year-old. The weird thing is maybe we all had similar experiences, but in all different parts of the world, because I remember I was sick when I was younger. <laughs> this is going to be a recurring theme. But I would lie in bed and I used to change the channels and it was always like every afternoon there would be Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire or just an old classic movie. So I was really raised on those classic movies as well. I wonder if there's something I like about that. that. And they were all drawn to each other. Yeah. Isn't, I know that is interesting, right? It's, well, it's so romantic. It was mm-hmm. such a world that was created and the lighting they used for the black and white films. I mean, it was so spectacular. Julianne, do you think about that as a director? Like that dramatic and fantastic lighting that you don't really see. I mean, we all as actresses want to be lit well, oh, mm-hmm. but do you know what I mean? As a director, especially with like DVD or HD and all of that now, it's like, God, there was this other world called yeah. film. Yeah, <laughs> I, it, yep. 
MGM just creating this fantastical world. Did you always want to be an actor? Was that always the dream? Oh, I was little, like five, six. I was like, that's what I want to do. I did my first school play when I was probably six or seven. I played Glenda the Good Witch, even though my dress looked like Dorothy's because, you know, you brought your costumes from home. But it was like, this is like this magical thing. I wanted to be Glenda the Good Witch. Well, I have to say, watching Fargo... I was watching what you did after you left Grey's Anatomy. You could have easily, I'm sure, jumped into any series after private practice, any network thing that you wanted. And I'm watching Umbrella Academy. I'm watching Fargo. I'm watching 13 Reasons Why. And what I'm seeing, I'm like, this is an old school movie star. This is, You chose these characters. And these women are all glamorous. And they're all having a great time, even if they're down on their luck. Even if they're not the star of it, they are all number one on the call sheet in their world. Like you just would come in and steal a scene. Was that an intentional choice for you of like, I want these fun, like gritty character parts? Because it was such a joy watching you chew the scenery in those. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I will say that I think as a struggling actor, you just want to work. And then the dream is to get it. Remember, it was like to get a show because yeah. everybody would do a pilot. I mean, everybody, you got to do movies too, but those, it was so hard. You said, I mean, I didn't have any, we didn't have like parents in the business or ends like that. We scrapped it out, duked it out. And so you're so excited when you get a show and then you get a series like Grey's, which is iconic and massively successful and critically acclaimed. And then you're like, okay, but I want to act. I want to play different roles. That's what I always wanted to do. And I always felt like a character actress that's what's interesting to me, right? And so whether in comedy and drama, I always did. And I think you feel like Hollywood's always trying to like box you in and go, well, you're this, you're that. And so I was really done with playing Addison. As grateful as I was, which of course I was, it it opened up a whole world to me. It was a delight and I met and I learned so much. And I honestly, one of the gifts of being able to play a role for a long time and the gift of network television for me is you get better as an actress, I think. If you really like acting, and you want to, and you're not just there going, okay, well, now I've got this great check. I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff, which I did too. <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> yeah, I did. Oh, I did. I like that you enjoyed your success, though, I have to say. I like that you are self-made and you've enjoyed your success. I have. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. But I I was really bored then. That's why I created Boyfriend. Like my the creative part of me, kind of my mind was always going. I don't know. So let me just circle back and finish that thought that I do think that being able to work every day made me a better actress. Mm-hmm. I just got to practice every day. I mean, you're there. I think you could either get lazier <laughs> and just, mm-hmm. but, or you could get better. And I feel like it made me a better actress to be able to practice all the time. But then after that, I was like, get me out of network. I felt like I'd been in network jail. I'm like, I really just want to play. People are like, what do you want to play now? I'm like, things that end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you want to do now? Things that end. Like, I just want to play a part that, that it's beginning, middle, end done. So it was really the, I think, well, I did Bad Judge, remember? And that was yeah. a, a roller coaster in and out of hell. I mean, that was a crazy baptism that I still am proud of, but it was really painful, as you know, Arden. It was like a crazy, crazy journey. But I, Fargo is what I did in between. That was the thing I really did straight away. If you've not seen her, Gina Hess, this character, she is like a cat in heat 
looking for her money. You had this giant like cooler that you flung from your finger. And she's like this like sexy former exotic dancer that's been like housed up in the great north and does not want to be there. Like trying to get this insurance check. The outfits, the glamour, the physicality, you and Martin Freeman, like you sticking your leg up and putting your foot behind his shoulder and like (laughs) just stretching your legs. I mean, the freedom of that. I was like, look at her go. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back. And we, we have so many questions about business and your acting. It's incredible. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Okay, we we left off with me complimenting Gina. All of your costumes, I've noticed, you are decked to the nines. Like, your outfits and Umbrella Academy should be in a museum. They should. That's Christopher Hargaden, the costume designer. And, like, a team of expert milliners and he that was really a delight that was the costumes though for me 
and shoes. I can't say this without sounding really pretentious, but coming from the stage, you know, you just, you're like, what shoes am I wearing? It's going to determine how I walk. Don't you think that? And Arden and Julianne, like, it's just like, how are you going to walk? How are you going to move? And I think also wanting to be an actress from being a little kid, part of it is playing dress up. That's like the fun, like going into your parents' closet, going into, I remember going to my mom's makeup, you know, you're just like, I want to put on makeup, do something crazy with my hair, do wear weird clothes. It's dress up. And I think I really got the experience of that and the liberation because, you know, when you get trained, it was all Stanislavski and, and even improv training, which is yes and. and But when I did Commedia training with Johnny Cusack's company at the time, New Crime in Chicago, and then Tim Robbins Theater Company, what is it? Actors Gang. But the Commedia stuff is all working with archetypes and masks and, and yeah. status and characters. And it is, it's going to this old school part of yourself that loves to play dress up. So you're playing dress up and you kind of think, what archetype is this character? But it gave me the freedom to go start from the outside in. And their rules were like, what emotion are you playing in every scene in a heightened real has to be real and make it as heightened and as urgent as possible. So anger, fear, sadness, joy. And you think, oh, it's going to be too theatrical, but it's so, it was so liberating that experience. And so particularly in when you don't, I think as an actor have a lot of power of a writing or over the other elements, but you can go, okay, well, what are we going to create here? You know, in the toy closet. That kind of ties into a couple of questions that I have. One of them is just a selfish question. As a director and having been an episodic director, I'm really intrigued to ask you, does it actually make any difference who's directing you on an episodic show? Yes, absolutely. And why? Because you can't tell when you're a director, you just don't know. You just go in and it's so stressful because everybody knows each other. And, uh, you know, yeah, typically we'd say uh, it's the writer's medium, television and directors or visitors. Mm -hmm. And particularly like on private practice, which were grays or a show that we were just doing for so long and and we knew it so well. But you still, um, even if you know the set or, you know, like the character, you still crave a, a director that's going to give you something fresh and new. And I think even more so, it's kind of urgent that you want a really good director to keep it interesting and to help you find nuances and things that are that you hadn't thought about because you played it for so long or whatever. Does that make sense? And And also, it's still a conductor. I still think the director, in the very least, is the conductor mm -hmm. of the piece, you know? Well, that's good to know. Because you never can tell sometimes. <laughs> well, and also you can get some cranky, bratty actors that are just like, huh? You know what? <laughs> oh, yeah, whatever. We're still having our, you know, chat or our whatever. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my next question is, I remember I am being transported back to that first episode of Grey's that I did. And I didn't realize this was a big moment for you as well as me, because you'd come on and it was just soon after you came on the show. But you were always so, you have this quality of being very poised. And it goes back to that movie star thing that Arden was talking about, very poised, very self-possessed. That is a quality that I'm sure most people envy more than almost any other quality in the world. In fact, I am working with an executive coach and I said, if I could just have one quality in the whole world, it would be to be self-possessed. And you have that in spades. I'm intrigued. Is that a construct or is that real? Is it like a duck paddling quickly underneath? Yeah, I'd say the flip side of that is a quivering, shivering wharf rat. 
Wharf rat. A bat with a veiny wing that I'm often trying to clean and I can't get to. <laughs> Whatever is the most repulsive antithesis of composure. It's interesting. I've literally never thought of that or thought of myself like that. Because I think when I think of like public things like red carpets and all that, I always just feel so not enough and shattered and weird and like uh, pretending. Part of this podcast has been a little bit of self-help for mm-hmm. Julianne and I. We just, mm-hmm. we bring people on that we have what we Faking want. It. We... I fake it. Yeah, that's the question. How do you, uh, how do you find it within yourself to appear composed? And it could also go back to the training that you're talking about, the commedia training, the theater training, where you kind of have to look at yourself from the outside. But how do you do it? I don't know. I'm thinking about now and here and being in Australia. And one of the things that I've been doing was doing a lot of chatting about getting a studio built here because they have little stages and things here and there, but mostly people come here to shoot exterior location scenes. And But I was thinking about just being asked to do, to come and speak and come and meet with all these people that are, that come on Flashpoint, which is like one of their sort of a talk show, but like a PBS talk show talking about the necessity of a studio. And it's like, there's some inner persona. There must be, that's like a boss lady, a boss. That's like, okay, that I can click into and create. Then I think there's just, it's like a natural sort of leadership role. But the other flip side of that is that little wharf rat that's like shaking in my boots. Mm-hmm. But I think there is like probably a healthy parent part of myself that is very like confident and like, this is what I need, this is what I want. But it's that struggle. I mean, I was just with my mental health care professional yesterday talking about that. Like, and she was delineating the child versus like the healthy parent, because I think in our culture so much, you're like, a, to be an artist, you have to be like a bit of a kid. You're like mm-hmm. a fun, playful kid. But then often if you're, you know, the adult who's confident in that as a woman anyway, you're called a bitch. That's so true. It's so, so true. True. So that's like, I was saying to her, she's like, why are you afraid of being not, or letting yourself be angry? You're like, because then I'll be called a bitch. Right. Mm-hmm. And she's like, that's not real. And so, so that's, I know I've really pivoted or digressed, but. No, no, we love this. But I think that there is that feeling. She's like, there's, you can feel it in yourself when you're just being an adult and confident and with a level gaze and. I think it started in acting. It's just acting. You're like, okay, you're going on stage. Just do it. I could be shaking in my boots and literally, and then you're just like, okay, it's on. And there was a certain safety to knowing like when you're doing a play, there's going to be a cut. It's going to end. Was there a reason you chose acting then, do you think? Because I often think about why I chose directing. And I think it was looking at it now, it's like you could control you know, when, when things are out of control, there was a certain amount of control that you could bring. So I'm just curious as to whether there's an element of that into going into acting. I think when I was little, it was it being expressed and seen and having attention. Probably. I, I mean, I was like, I want to be fabulous. I want to do that. I want to be, you know, like, you know, you weren't thinking famous. It wasn't that, but being seen probably. And I think probably coming from the, where I came from as a kid, it was such a jungle in my house, you know, that it was like, this was a place for me to be seen and, and heard and expressed and get validated for sure. You know, and I think that that, I think a lot of people can identify with that. And I think when you're really young, you don't even have the words for that. You're just like, there's something in here that's got to be out and it's not being expressed. And then there was a, so there's a tension that you're good at it. You're getting an audience. I, mean, there was, I remember doing school plays. I remember cracking my first joke on stage. 
there was some comedy line that landed and the audience laughed. I'm like, this is amazing. I mean, I'm sure Arden, you remember that, you know, getting laughs, making people laugh. Oh my God. At camp when I was 10. Oh my God. And this question for both of you guys, I guess, but does it ever get to the point where the need, the reason why you needed to become an actor then you move past that at a certain point. You don't need that anymore because you're kind of, I don't know, you just don't need it anymore. And then what do you do at that point? That's where I am, Julianne. I think, yeah, for me, I'm like, oh, I got, yeah, I got there. I did it. Now what? (laughs) Yeah, I remember. And it's actually something I think that Shonda and I identified with. And it was sort of why she made private practice. She's like, okay, I'm making this show at Grey's Anatomy about people that are struggling and getting to where they want to be as doctors, residents, and then now you get there and then what happens? What's your mm-hmm. life like? And that was what she, why she wanted to make, you know, a more adult sort of show. And for me, and then, you know, this reads, goes into health stuff. Mm-hmm. I was just all guns blazing still at 48 when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. My managing and coping mechanism too is just like, okay, go get a bunch of other things going. Like it's not enough to be acting and producing. Like let's always, there's always a remodel going on. There's always like redecorating out. And then moving in with my then boyfriend and his kids. That was a great house, by the way. That was a great house you redecorated. (laughs) The one with the the boyfriend and the kids, that was great. The Encino house, that was Mm -hmm. a good one. So it's like, but I knew even before, I was like, this can't last. This is mm-hmm. going to have to end. I can't keep going like this. There's something that's coming and I mm-hmm. don't know what it is, but it turned out it was a five centimeter brain tumor. <laughs> well, we definitely want to talk about that. Before we get to that, I have one. I always admired you just as like a boss, as like a businesswoman, unapologetically that you made your own money. You know, we, we talk about money on this podcast. As I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of women don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you good at negotiating for your, like to make advocating? Have you always been good at negotiating? Are you better at it? Like, well, this is what it is. I think I probably got better, but I was always, for some reason, even when I first got, you know, an agent in New York and a manager at that time in the nineties, it was like very, there's a lot of money, particularly in TV. Like I always knew where my value was and TV right out of the gate. It seemed like I had value. And this was in the days where they were just doing crazy development deals for stand-up comics and all that kind of stuff. And it was in the days too, when you do a pilot and it was double what your regular episodic fee was, which was a lot of money mm-hmm. for someone who had come from waitressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was like, what? I didn't get that. But it was like high stakes gambling in a way. And you're kind of betting on yourself. So you kind of know what your value was in the marketplace. But then I always sort of had a good idea. And then as an adult, or as I got more and more work, I understood that, oh, I'm going to go do this project, not for money, obviously, an indie film. It's going to be for the art. But I know I can make my bank over here. And it was always in television. But it's still like I did Emily in Paris for fun, not for fun and for free, but just like go shoot in Paris with my friend Andy Fleming and the delightful Darren Starr and Lily and all that. But to work in Paris and just do a fun shoot Paris for Chicago, I was like, okay, (laughs) you know, but then you understand where for me, I'm like, I understand where I can get paid. And then there was a certain fuel and anger beneath that in terms of, look, the gender pay gap is ridiculous and there's nothing fair about it and there's nothing logical about it film is where i see it the most because i just have my value in television is much different than than film 
And so I would sort of push and, and even push my agents. And, and But I also have a great lawyer, I should say, that's like an incredible negotiator. Okay, my boyfriend just walked up with a massive thing of flowers. Oh! <laughs> How cute is this? Did you time this? This seems like... Oh, oh my God, they're beautiful! Oh, wow. oh my God, peonies and lilies. Wow. Okay, sorry. <laughs> oh my God, that is a huge bouquet of flowers. I have one mm. money question, and you can feel free to say no. I've never asked you about this, but I have so many self-made female friends who came from nothing and were married, and their husbands, who were all healthy, working men, get divorced and go after their money. Yeah, that happened to me, as you know. Yeah, I still pay him. I was married. I was married 14 beautiful months. <laughs> so you still pay him? Yes, by the law of California. You know, there's a lot of people in that position. And you did yeah. not have children. You didn't have kids. No, we had a house. We had a house and a car. He was a studio executive uh, making a very good living. I literally can tell you quite honestly, though, I have no resentment about that now. I did. How? How? For a mm -hmm. long time. Well, I worked through that. I had to do some <laughs> real work. But it, let's just say I don't have any resentment now. But there was one year where I sent $9,000 in coins and a check for 30 cents. <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a business manager's idea. It's great. Oh, my God. She's like, I have it. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. <laughs> That's legal. It's still legal, isn't it? But I don't have any. I don't. I'm just like, I kind of laugh at it. And it's like, there's no, there's, and I think also this, there's a generation of people that thinks that life should be fair and it's just not, and it's never mm -hmm. going to be. And it's actually the rare anomaly when things are fair. So you kind of got to get used to that and make your own, live by your own morality and lick your wounds and go on. I'm 53 years old on my way to a strong 54. <laughs> and I just got my ass handed to me via email. I sent a script out to a dear friend who was like, this is the biggest piece of shit I've ever read. <laughs> Did I you write it? it? I'm offended by it. Well, I, it was my story that Joe Walsh and my friend wrote. And so whacked out, out there, comedy crazy. So it still happens. And you're like, well, I'm not going to cancel him. And I hope he's not going to cancel me. It just was a person that had a really strong reaction to something that I said. <laughs> but I'm just saying that you still get your feelings. I still get my feelings mm -hmm. hurt. You still have to lick your wounds and you still have to go. And I thank you, sir, for your feedback and for <laughs> trudging through that um, <laughs> heap of garbage that you felt, you, you know, Julianne, circling back to you asking, like, do you still want to act? It changes, I think, as an art, and I'm sure it's changed for you, like how you want to express yourself as an artist, right? But I still take swings. I still take big swings and risks because I'm a I thrill seeker. I don't feel like I ever got the shot that was like, insatiable part was fun, but I feel like I haven't gotten to show what I can fully do. I mean, I've always, I mean, I've always wanted to make my own thing, but I still feel like I haven't gotten to do it. Right. I still have that itch. Good. I'm like, let's go. Yes. For me, it's more interesting to create stories and shows. Like that's more interesting to me now. Okay, wait, final question. So yeah. what I like about you, shaking it off, like, all right, I'm going to pay you every month for however long, like you're hardy, you get back in. So you at one point, you started a perfume company. You are an entrepreneur. Like you are a full business owner, mogul, full mogul. Like you have your own <laughs> perfume. Mogul. That's mogul. That was, yeah, but that was creative. I co-own it now with my business partner, Luigi Piccarazzi, who Great runs name. digital media management. It's the best name. So that, I started it myself when I was on private practice because I was 
creatively just really starving. I mean, I, you know, number, I'm not complaining. Number one on the call. It was like a great show, a great experience. But I, I think that's a spark of creativity. Where does it come from? There's something that a little mm-hmm. bee buzzing around and you're like, oh, it's not going, go away. It doesn't make any sense. I'm working 70 hours a week. I don't have time for that. This is crazy. Just go away. But the bee, if it keeps coming back, you're like, all right, I got to pay attention to this. Can I just say you've always smelled great. I don't know if I do right now, but thank you. Uh, it's a little sweaty here. But no, I just, it was more, it was a creative and it was all driven by story, which was my boyfriend and I had broken up. I missed his cologne. I was in New York shopping at Jeffrey's, walking by a giant poster of Sarah Jessica Parker. Her, I think second fragrance was coming out or something. And I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great? Maybe I'll go to the men's counter to get, you know, a masculine scent that reminds me of my boyfriend. I'm like, boyfriend, that would be a great idea. Boyfriend, boyfriend in a bottle. My mom loves my boyfriend. You know, maybe my husband loves all these like tagline, like lines, just like story just kept coming at me that ideas and the little songs and I don't know, stories. So then I eventually was like, ah, I'm just going to call my lawyer and see if the IP is available. It probably isn't. There's already boyfriend jeans, boyfriend shirts. There's boyfriend, there's, that's not going to be available. Well, it was available. So I just took that as a green light. I just kept exploring it. And that's when agents, I think, and, or managers or lawyers are the best. Because if they're there saying, let's go for it. And we didn't do it in a traditional licensing deal. We just, I owned it and I created it. And I sold it in the room and I pitched it to HSN and Sephora. And then I made it. I went about making it the way you would a pilot. You know, and this was actually told to me by my the ex-boyfriend that it was inspired by, who was a VC. He's like, why don't you just make it and own it? And so it's success. You get a loan from the bank and you make it. And then you own it. And then it's yours creatively. That's amazing. We're going to take a quick break before we do. Do you have any words of wisdom for, you know, gals in any industry, any working gals out there who maybe get nervous, but like trying to take ownership of themselves and their dreams and being like the boss lady, like anything to help them on days where they maybe feel nervous or scared about making a presentation or going in for like a job interview, like what you would say to like own your inner baller? I would say to that moment, if let's just address that of like nervousness or feeling flat or anxious, I would say for me, what's always relieved me of that is to talk about it with somebody, to get support from a friend. You're very good at that. I mean, I'm not kidding. When I first did a voiceover, the very first voiceover I ever did, it was a big deal. And I got so nervous when I went into the booth because I was in LA and all I could see was Chicago and New York, like 40 people, you know how it is, on the other side of a phone, eating bagels, listening and judging. And I got so nervous, my heart was pounding and I lost my breath. I couldn't, literally couldn't get the lines out. And there, and then there was like these dead pauses at the other end that they're all probably going, why, what's happening with her? Why did we hire her? And I was freaking out. And I got to the point where I'm like, can they see me? Or is it just the cans? And what I did in that moment, I excused myself. I went to the engineer and I was like, they can't see me. Right. And he's like, no, I'm like, okay, this is my first time ever doing a voiceover and I'm really nervous. And I, I don't know what to do. I'm like, I can't catch my breath. And he was just like, uh, yeah, just relax. I guess he didn't have, it wasn't the advice that he had. It was just me saying it buying myself time, acknowledging that I'm human. Then the idea came to me, let me look at the commercial again, kind of have a look at the film. And then I could get out of my downward spiral and rabbit hole, catch my breath. Yeah. 
But I do think that in any of those cases, like support, support, support. Yeah, buddy system. I think a lot of people think to be a boss lady or to be an entrepreneur, you have to do it alone. It's like singular. It's not. It's always community. And that's like the biggest lesson I've learned. Find your village. That's great advice. It's so good. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and talk about something we're very excited to talk to you about. Okay. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. And we're back. Okay. So I'm very protective of you. And as you mentioned earlier, you did have a brain tumor, but like just to sort of give a headline, a hypothesis for this. My mom, rest in peace, JJ, shout out to JJ in the sky who loved Kate. She always told me that I was the CEO of my body, how important it is to advocate for yourself at a doctor. And ironically, which I'll mention later, I think she was dismissed in a way that ultimately, I think as a woman in particular, you can get dismissed. So I was yes. with you and I've known you for years and you were not Okay. You were really tired. You couldn't drive yourself. 
you've openly discussed that you'd already been through an early menopause, but like, could you talk a little bit about your experience of like, you knew something was off and how people reacted? Yeah, well, I think culture is, you can't really blame anybody. It's just that, you know, my boyfriend at the time thought I was depressed. I was exhausted. I could have like five cups of coffee and I couldn't wake up. But it was this very subtle sort of thing. And I thought it was because I'd just done bad judge and I had exhausted myself. I was doing this really intense workout at the time. And so I thought, oh, I'll ease up on that and go back to Pilates. And then the Pilates woman is like, oh, your whole right side of your body is dipping. I'm like, no, it's not. Oh yeah, it is. Oh, oh, okay. Hmm. And then I noticed like subtle things, like I was off balance a little bit and I really thought, oh, the menopause is back. Is that it? And so, because I was feeling pretty just flat not just exhausted, but really like a little low. And so my boyfriend at the time was like, oh, you're depressed because your show was canceled. Bad Judge was canceled. I'm like, no, I don't, it's not that. I've been on tons of stuff that's been canceled. It's not that. And then, you know, even my assistant, Derek, at the time, he'd never worked with me not working. So he thought, oh, is this what she is? Like she's an actress out of work. Is this what she's like? You know, I mean, he came, he rocked up to the house one time and I was laying in my robe on the lawn. Mm. <laughs> I was like, it just felt good. Remember you borrowed that <laughs> van to do the photo shoot and you were driving. We wanted to do a show called Get In My Van and we- A mobile talk show. Oh, it was fun. And my friend, Rebecca Drake, who's an amazing photographer, she was taking photos of us and her husband is a member of the Silver Sun Pickups, the band, and she loaned us the band van and Kate was driving it. I'm always a driver. I usually, I have no problems. I drive everywhere. What was it? You're like, hey, kitty cat. I remember you said, hey, kitty cat, you're getting pretty close to the cars on the side. You kept almost hitting every car. I'm like, whoa, whoa, hey, girl. Hey, queen. Hey, kitty cat. Like, <laughs> loaned, loaned van. Hey, kitty. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Watch out for that mirror that you almost knocked out. Yeah. I had no idea. That was the beginning of me understanding I couldn't drive. Cut to, And then even then, my assistant's like, oh, my God, diva. She needs to be to drive her. And then he got in the car with me. He's like, no, pull at a stoplight. He made me switch. So I finally, you know, I went to see a person that specializes in menopause and because it ticked the boxes for all that again, even though I'd already been through it. I'm like, this is weird. I remember being at Hugo's with you and you. Yeah. (laughs) Jane Lynch. Jane Lynch walked in. You're like, Jane, I need to talk to you about menopause. She was like, okay. How did I know her? Had she already talked about it? I don't know. But you were like, she looks stunned. Wow, girl. Yeah. She was like, okay. And you were like, it's the society is so sexist. Nobody talks about it. And she was like, okay, I'm just trying to get like a very green casserole. Like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> anyway, sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, you were talking to Jane Lynch about menopause and she looked like, huh? Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was like, I felt like, well, I felt like I was going crazy. And then I really was like, I started fantasizing about going to the emergency room because I just didn't feel right. And I really was scared. It went from subtle to a nosedive where I couldn't drive. I was having trouble balancing walking, but also I just cognitively, I couldn't function. I couldn't order like Uber Eats, but all these things were so subtle initially. I'm like, oh, it's like ADD from machines or from, you know, devices. Ah, Mm -hmm. I can't finish my book. It's Murakami. It's very dense. Ah, okay. And then I I said to my boyfriend, like, I just want to go to the emergency rooms. Like, I just wish you'd get on meds. I'm like, I'm not adverse to that. I just tell you, I'm telling you there's something wrong. I don't feel good. I go, I want to get a scan. He's like, don't go to the emergency room. It'll be on TMZ. So he got me this great prominent neurologist at Cedars. He got an appointment. I went in and the guy was like, you're in menopause. You're a woman of a certain age, an actress. You're not working. <laughs> you know, this is very common. 
I think you're depressed. And he just slid across a prescription for a very high dose of Zoloft, which is an antidepressant. And I was like, respectfully, I have a shrink who can prescribe and I'm not, you know, opposed to this, but I just want to get, I want to get an MRI. I want to get a scan. And he said, why? Why, What do you think you're going to find? I said, I don't know. Maybe there's some immaculate degeneration. I don't know, but I just want to get an MRI before I commit to a very high dosage of this. And I should say that had I gone to my GP who's female before she would have like ordered it up straight away. After that, she was, she was shocked and appalled that this guy was so resistant. So he finally capitulated and wrote me the prescription. And then it wasn't even urgent. We didn't, I think like a week later or something, I went in and in the night before I went in, my boyfriend threw me a volleyball in the pool and I fractured my pinky because I had no depth perception. I mean, I remember going to a premiere <laughs> I was wearing flip-flops. I couldn't balance. I was like, it was a disaster. And so I went in for a fractured pinky at a brain scan. And I remember saying on the way there, I had Derek Congo, just see if they'll tell me anything. And they said, no, they won't. They have to send the scans. Well, right after I got out of the MRI, they're like, the radiologist wants to see you. And I'm like, great, I'm going to get some news. And then that's what they said. You know, you have what looks to be benign, but we won't know until we get in there, a meningioma brain tumor. I'm like, and, uh, what? and they showed me these scans of my brain stem, the, the line, which was like a parabola. It was bent like, Kate texted me a picture of this tumor. It was literally the size of like, not a McDonald's hamburger, like a juicy homemade, <laughs> an enormous, like a Whopper. Like I was like a, like a huge hamburger. Yeah, patty. it was big. It was a big, it was like a lemon. It was a lemon, but it was a little over five centimeters. And I should say right before this, I started getting shooting pains in my eye, um, my left eye, which is where, where it was. Then three days later, they took it out. It started on you know, steroids and anti-seizure uh, medication. And uh, I was very lucky that it hadn't gotten to the point where I had seizures. So yeah, and then it, they took it out and thank God it was all right. It was benign. We didn't know until they got in there if they would get the whole thing out, if it was able, what it would be, but it was great. I feel very, very, very lucky because there was a person that I knew that had a not benign meningioma and he died 18 months later. So you do feel as cliche, it's all the cliches. You're like, okay, if I come out of this, going to make some changes in my life. Mm-hmm. And I did. Mm-hmm. I had no idea how common it is for women to go to the doctor and to be told that what they have wrong with them is stress. And it goes back to hysteria, apparently, you know, when yeah. women were diagnosed as hysterics. So thank you for sharing your story. My yeah. mom, yeah. who her mom had polio. And so she sort of gave up on like medical science. So she was raised kind of Christian scientist. Like she would just make us go swimming in the ocean. I mean, I went to doctors, but like if we were going to the doctor growing up, something was really wrong. And my mom, before she died, she kept going to the doctor to get x-rays. And she was like, something was wrong with her shoulder and her arm. And she was icing it and like died of suddenly of like a massive heart attack, like three weeks later. And the nurses in our family afterwards, like the female nurses were like, oh, that's the sign for women. It's in your shoulder and your neck. Like that's how women present as. That's very true that women's heart disease presents in so many different ways. Yeah. That's yeah. actually something that I'm interested in, in my own, for my own health. I'm like, wait, I think I got to get an angio. I want to make sure because it is so radically different for women. My dad was always, they were always injecting the ink dye in his vein. Like, I'm not saying her outcome would have been any different, but maybe if they'd seen it, if there was a 
clogged something. I mean, who knows? My brother's obsessed with it. I'm kind of in acceptance that this is how it went down. But my brother was very, if this is a known thing, why didn't anybody ask for more tests? Anna, our producer here, she was saying that she really has learned how to be an advocate for herself when you go to the doctor, Anna. Right. I mean, that also stems from my mom, too, who is an Iranian immigrant and She's a very strong woman, but I think people, when they hear her accent, kind of dismiss her, not realizing that she's, you know. An engineer? Yeah, she's an engineer. She knows what's up. And so she would always say, if they say no, tell them to write it down that they specifically, that doctor said no. Because she says, if you make them be accountable for if anything happens later on and they were the ones that say it, basically it's like, all right, well, put your money where your mouth is. If you're telling me that I'm this, whatever I'm feeling is like in my head or like whatever, stress related, anxiety, whatever, I'm making it up because I'm, you know, a hysterical woman or whatever, then write it down so we know. And she would always tell me to do that because, you know, it's even worse with people of color. They really dismiss people of color. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you say it because your mom's accent, too. It's like really interesting that it's just so basic and terrible. Just like, oh, you must be not intelligent. You must yeah. be really stupid because yeah. you got that accent, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're right. With women of color, people of color, it's it's really... so. But I think also it, it brings about the issue of, in our culture, we're socialized to believe that lawyers and doctors, because every parent was like, oh, grow up and be a lawyer and a doctor, that they're experts and mm-hmm. they're gods and they know. And even when you do a medical show, like we did, you know, Julia, like the mm-hmm. craze or whatever, the, for neurosurgeons, they'd say, oh, they think they're gods or heart surgeons with these really, there's a God complex there. Mm-hmm. And what I used to do too, even before the brain tumor and all that, but when I was, because I went through early menopause, when I was having, I found out very suddenly and was quick trying to go to a fertility doctor. And, and I never really went to the doctor either. I just was like more, you know, I'll go to acupuncture, do that. But I would bring a friend with me because I leave my body when I go to the doctor. I get nervous. I get scared. I'm like, uh, and even now when I go to get scans for my, you know, follow-up scans, I bring someone with me because I think we all think, oh, we're adults. We should be able to handle this. Like I'm an adult person or I'm a mother. I've got all these kids. I run a business. I should be able to go to the doctor by myself. I just am always like strength in numbers, support, support, support. So literally, I remember going to a fertility doctor in LA and I brought my friend Corinne with me and she with her little Yorkie and we were just like these two <laughs> women that rocked up. Like, <laughs> I'm like, you ask the questions because I forget. I sit there and I'm like, huh? Stra- I just leave my body. I just dissociate because it's stressful. I think it's also easier to advocate sometimes for somebody else and not yourself. Like I could go ask questions for you, probably I yeah. more than I could ask for mm-hmm. me. And you want to get answers. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no way. And you can write it all down, but I still think it's nice to have, have a friend. This is the theme. This is the theme of this podcast. It's really great advice. Oh, good. I'm glad. We have to ask our question. We have a question that we ask everybody. I'm going to let my friend, Miss Julianne, ask you. <laughs> okay. What would you say to your young self, looking back on that child, what advice would you give that child now? In fact, it can be any age. It could be 14. It could be eight, whatever. Like young Kate. What does young Kate need to know? Oh, boy. That's like major. Well, there's so many things. But I think that. I would say to young Kate that you're loved and that don't worry 
worrying is a waste of time. Everything always is okay. It's going to be okay. It is okay. Everything always works out. So don't worry. That's what I would say. Don't worry. You got this, girl. (laughs) As much as you work hard, you really do dive into life and you're so curious. You travel the world and you're a loyal friend. You really have a community around you and a curiosity and you really appear to have a nice work-life balance. And I just am very grateful for you. I just love you so much. I think you're doing great. And I'm so thankful that you did this podcast with us. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Just what a delight. It's so nice to chat with you, ladies, the women. Thank you. I enjoy you. Anna, you look great, I must say. Thank you. Oh, my God. Can I just say I'm so happy to talk to you. What a delight. Thank you. Where can people find you, Miss Kate? Oh, at www. I think it's katewalsh.com. I'm not certain. Um, or on Instagram, it's Kate Walsh. And get her boyfriend. And then we perfume. have boyfriend, boyfriend perfume. Yeah, boyfriendperfume.com. Well, Kate, we love you. Follow her. You can follow us. I'm Arda Marine, M Y R I N. And Julianne is Julianne Robinson, director, I think. Yes, that's correct. Anna, Dr. Banana, where can people find you? I'm just at Anna Hosnier. And you can email us at ladyroadpodcast at gmail.com. And you guys, what a delight. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Lady of the Road. Uh, Have a good time and advocate for yourselves. Go for it. Buddy system. Go dream big, ladies and gents. Everybody. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Clam comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.